Colossians 3 and verse 9-ish is where we're turning this morning and some other places as well. God is speaking to us and teaching us what is needful for our lives in Christ. If we're born again, if we are regenerated, if we are born from above, then our lives should look different from what they used to, and also different, really a stark contrast to the world and how we ought to shine and shine forth as lights in a dark place. One of those aspects has to do with how we interact with one another. We've looked at a list of sins that we ought to avoid back in verse 5, the sins of hatred and animosity when we have, uh, or actually, no, that's the ones we saw in verse 8, the sins of of uh, love and, and improper uh, pursuit of satisfaction in life, sexual immorality and uncleanness and uh, or impurity and... Um, Passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Those things should not characterize believers, should not be any any part of our lives. Whereas, man, that, that's just what the world is all about. That's what the world characterizes and, and rejoices and celebrates and, and congratulates other people on their uh, uncleanness or their immorality or their, oh, there's a passionate fellow, or oh, he's greedy, but it's okay because greed is good in that context, or uh, the idolatry that we have and just as wickedness, and that used to characterize us, uh, Paul says in this in this context. Then again in verse 8, of course, he had the list of uh, sins, of hatred, that how we can interact, how we often do in the world, interact with people with wrath or anger and uh, clamor or, or uh, violent speech, ill will toward one another, blasphemy, and uh, plotting against one another. We pray that, or we hope that that would not be characterizing our lives now that we'd live in love. In fact, we'll see this uh, above all these things put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. We'll see it later in this chapter. We ought not be like the world. And it's not something that we drum up within our own strength and power. We, you know, the, the one of the mottos of the what used to be called the Boy Scouts of America said, um, do a good turn daily, right? Or, or be prepared was the was the motto, but do a good turn daily was kind of the characteristic thing. See what you can do and help other people. And it's almost like you have a checklist. I've done my deed, my good deed daily, so I'm done. And I can be a heathen or hedonistic or whatever now. I can live for myself. When we are in Christ, we should forget ourselves. Philippians 3, Philippians 2 rather, says that we should consider other people as more important than ourselves. Don't seek for your own interest, but for the interest of other people. And so we're always serving, always meeting needs, not focused on ourselves, what we expect out of life, what we want and what we expect from you, and we're disappointed, and so we're going to be in fisticuffs against one another, we're going to be verbally abusive toward one another. No, we are in a service mode, even as Christ did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. All these things, all these, this, these changes in the believer's life come from the fact we were saved. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. We have died with him, and we've been raised up together with him. Romans 6 says, therefore, we should walk in newness of life. The old man is dead. We'll see this in this, in this passage. And the new man has come. The new creation has come. Why are we trying to act like the old man when now we have a new capacity, a new opportunity, a new enablement. Now we can actually begin to please God with our lives, with our words, with our affections and, and plans and purposes and relationships and everything. 
for the first time in our life, we can live in a way that honors God. Used to be we were at enmity. We were in declared war, hated God. And even, did everybody hate God? Yes. Everybody was estranged from God. Everybody was, was not pleasing him, not drawing near to him. And so this change that Christ has made in our lives changes everything. But without that change that Christ made in our lives, any change that we try to accomplish, try to implement in our lives, it may look good, it may help us in some respects, but eternally, no. Good moral people will go to hell. Beautiful, happy, serving, humanitarian, philanthropist people will be separated from God because they did not believe in Christ. They didn't have a heart change. They didn't have a forgiveness of sin. Christ is the issue here. And what happens in our behavior only, I mean truly, only is is built on that foundation. We are based in Christ, and therefore we ought to live differently. Now you can see, and you have seen, and hopefully you're not that person, but you've seen Christians who know the gospel and can tell you the gospel, but they live no differently than what they used to live, or they live no differently, more, no distinct, no dist, no distinction from the world. That they're not uh, not different from with their words, with what how they spend their time and money. Christ truly changes their lives. This issue of progressive sanctification being made more like Christ is what Paul is talking about here. But it flows from justification, being declared righteous in Christ. If we get those out of order and we somehow believe that our sanctification is the basis for our justification, okay, those are the big words. If we believe that our behavior determines where we're going to end up in eternity, then we're wrong. It's what Christ has done. That's the issue. That's what, Christ, what Paul has been making all through this, this letter. Christ is the one. Christ is sufficient. Christ is supreme. Christ is the Savior. And we're a mess. And we need a Savior. We need Christ. We need his righteousness. We need his life. We need his uh, intercession for us. So that's what he's celebrating here. I'm going to read uh, beginning in verse 4 and read a little beyond our, our text this morning just to get uh, a little bit of more of the context here. We've, we've read beginning verses so much, but beginning at verse 4 of Colossians 3, Paul says, When Christ, who is our life, is manifested, then you also will be manifested with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, and in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also lay them all aside, wrath, anger, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you put off the old man with its evil practices, and have put on the new man, who is being renewed to a full knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, uncircumcised, uncircumcised, barbarians, Scythian, slave, and free men, but Christ is all and in all. So, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and graciously forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord graciously forgave you, so also should you. And, of course, he goes on and, and gives more instruction on that. What, what does it look like to be in Christ? Well, it means here, verse 9 says, don't lie to one another. Don't lie to another. Let me go to the, the last part of this verse first just to, to help us see what is he doing here. He is, he is putting this 
this idea of having been clothed with something. He says, no, you, you took off those dirty garments. You have put off. It says, since you have put off the old man. And then, of course, in the next verse it says, and you have put on the new man who is being renewed and so forth. That contrast, I guess double contrast, one is putting off, having put off, or since you put off, and then the contrast of that, of course, is putting on, and in the context of, of uh, clothing, it's having put off your, your filthy, dirty garments. Now you've put on fresh, clean things. So because of that, because that is the real spiritual condition you are, it changes, ought to change, your behavior, your conduct in your daily life. So there's that contrast of putting off and, and putting on. And the, the way that it, it says here, uh, the word is even more forceful than, than uh, you know, just quietly, um, uh, gently undressing yourself or being undressed. But it has the idea, as we saw back in chapter 2, verse 11 of Colossians, uh, has the idea of stripping or uh, even disarming in the context of Christ's victory over, over death and of the agents of death. In verse 11 of chapter 2, it says, in the removal, and that is the not just the, the gentle, quiet undressing, but the stripping of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Christ is not interested in just a minor modification, a little minor renovation, a little touching up of the paint here and maybe putting some new trim and wallpaper or whatever there. Uh, no, this is a total redo. We need a new creation. That old thing cannot inherit. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. We need a new, born from above, uh, um, a person, and that is what Christ did. Same idea is down in verse 15. Christ has not just conquered our, our fleshly body, being uh, having died with him and raised up with him, but in verse 15 he says he had disarmed, uh, this is uh, God the Father, had disarmed the rulers and authorities. God the Father made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Christ. Take out the pronouns there and put in who are who are we talking about here? But God the Father disarmed. That's the idea of stripping, removing the the uh, the weapons of, of of strength and and power over people. No, they're vanquished. Satan is a vanquished foe, as God had foretold back in Genesis three. Uh, you're, you'll you'll bruise the Messiah's the, the Savior's heel, but he'll crush your head. He, he will deal a fatal blow upon you from which you will not recover, Satan, and all your dominions. You are disarmed. You have no authority, no further dominion here. And we, uh, later, or earlier in chapter 1, says we've been transferred out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of the Son of His love. So that contrast between putting off and putting on, it can be a kind of a gentle thing, but it can be a rather forceful, comprehensive, you can't bring that stuff into here. You remember the, the parable that Jesus told about folks coming to a banquet and wait, how'd you get in here and what are you dressed like that for? And that did not, no, that didn't fly with the, the master of the house. Get out of here. And, and there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth because he wasn't dressed right. Are we dressed right? Are we behaving ourselves properly? Lest I, I, I guess there are two examples. I tried to think of a good biblical example. I couldn't come up with one. Maybe you can in, inform me or enlighten me. But I'll just pick one. And because I like C.S. Lewis's Narnia Chronicles so much, um, in that same book I mentioned last week, The Horse and His Boy, Shasta, one of the, I guess, the protagonist, the main character and the, the hero of the story, um, 
was raised in a, in a beggar's home, a, a very impoverished home, and had just beggarly clothes and so forth. He's actually the king's son. He's actually the one who's going to inherit the kingdom. But he didn't know it. He was totally unaware of anything regarding his, his heritage, his progeny, or his future, until he came to, to his father, King Loon, and, and they recognized that's my son. That's the son. And you can read the story to find out what happened to him and how did he come back and what did that all mean. But his friends who traveled with him only knew him as Shasta, only knew him in his beggarly clothes, meanly raised. I mean, did not, did not know how to regard, you know, interact with people with social graces and so forth. When that young man came and was presented to his former traveling companions, he was not dressed as a beggar. In fact, they didn't even recognize him. Well, until... He started talking because he's the same guy. But he was dressed in princely garb. He was dressed differently. In fact, what they do with his old clothes, they didn't save them. They burned them. Get those things out of here. Those are not worthy for a prince, for a future king. And that is the attitude that we ought to have when we say, well, you know, I've done a lot of good in my life. I've done this and that and the other thing. And no, that is filthy garments ready for the fire. You're going to boast in those things? Let me let you see and taste and experience the righteousness of Christ. Wouldn't you rather be dressed in his righteousness than the thing that you're now ashamed of? Why are you taking his beautiful righteousness as a Christian and going back, joining Christ's body, because we are bought with a price, we should glorify God in our body, and now we go back and enjoy those sins of which we're now ashamed, those things, the evil desires, the greed, the, the, the wrath, the, the, uh, the uh, plotting against one another, the vengeance taking, the gossip slandering one another, that should not characterize believers. Are you acting like a pauper, or are you acting like a prince, a son of the king? or daughter of the king. This is the difference that, that this makes. This idea of putting off and putting on is in Scripture here in Colossians. It's also mentioned in Ephesians 4 and, and Romans 13. Just Ephesians 4, you can turn to... Actually, I want to turn to Romans uh, 13 instead of Ephesians 4. You can read the Ephesians passage in the time. But Romans 13, at the end of that uh, chapter, he is talking about you know what difference does Christ make in our lives, and how ought we to please God, and how ought we to uh, even obey the law, the, the Mosaic law, God's law? How ought we to do this? And just reading a, a portion of this, uh, Romans thirteen, uh, verse eleven. We do all these things. We fulfill the law by loving our neighbor, verse uh, 10 talks about. But verse 11 says, Do this knowing the time that it's already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone, the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. Put on, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. He gives that contrast between putting off, we put off the deeds of darkness, and we put on the, how does he say, the, the armor of light here. We should behave properly in the day. Our, our lives are different putting off and putting on. Now, there, the contrast there of putting off and putting on is twofold, and one of them is a past act done by God himself. Salvation is a work of God, 
And he's the one who stripped us. He's the one who removed the body of the flesh. He's the one who has removed it in one sense, but is going to, in the final resurrection, going to give us a new body so that both a new heart and a new body are able to enjoy God and be in his presence forever. We cannot, in our, in our present form, do that. We need a resurrection, a physical resurrection, to be in God's presence. We have the new spiritual, the inner man, as is also talked about, but we need that complete transformation of our bodies so that there's one sense in which the putting off and putting on is Christ's work done in the past. But here in Romans 13, he says, because of what God has done in the past, therefore you will be in a continual state of putting off the deeds, not the old man, that's been put off already, but the deeds, the trappings, the habits, the 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 familiarities, the the um, uh, the, the, all the, the stuff that used to characterize your life. Put that off. You're, you're different now. You're in Christ. And put on the armor of light. Put on Christ's provision, not just for a declaration of righteousness or a positional righteousness before God, being forgiven, which is we need to be forgiven, but in a practical day-to-day -day basis. What I, I like to paraphrase it this way. Let your daily practice match with your heavenly position. I mean, going back to that Narnia example, what would it be for Shasta, whose, whose real name was Kor, by the way, C-O-R, how would it be for him to continue to live as a beggar's son, as a pauper, as, you know, I'd like those clothes back, please. Uh, no, that's not going to be. In fact, one of Kor's, Shasta's, Kor's uh, greatest regrets or, or things he wasn't looking forward to is being educated that he had to learn things and, and study stuff. And he'd rather, well, you can read the rest of the story, but uh, how would that be for Kor to say, well, Father King Loon, I appreciate everything you're going to do for me uh, and everything and my future responsibilities, but I'd really like to go back being a fisherman's son. What? No, unthinkable. And uh, that's, that's not what happened, thankfully. The difference here, again, the, the contrast of putting off, putting on, is a past act which God has, done, God has done in us, but it's something we need to carry out in our daily lives, putting off the deeds of the, of the flesh. Galatians 5 talks about that, the, the works of the, of the flesh, which, you know what, that will get you condemnation, judgment. Yeah, that's not good. Uh, but put on the works of the Spirit, or the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, it's different. We strive in this way. It's not... Whereas the first putting off and putting on is God's work by grace through faith. The second thing is God's work in us with our cooperation, our participation in this. Uh, Philippians 2, 12 and 13 talk about the fact that we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in us. We thank God for that. I mean, if we were left to ourselves, uh, we would not turn out well. But God who is at work in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. But we work out, we strive, we press on, Paul says in Philippians 3. I strive, I press on toward that goal for which I've been called. Do you? Do you press on? Are you in a striving mode? Are you, uh, as uh, the writer of the Hebrews talks about, you're, you've not, as it Hebrews, you've not yet shed blood and you're striving against sin. We have this great crowd of witnesses. What are we doing? Still, you know, playing games over here with, with uh, all this wickedness that God hates. The wrath of God is coming upon all this wickedness. And we saw it's not a big deal. It is a big deal. God hates this stuff, but he loves righteousness. He loves love, compassion, kindness, humility, and all those things we'll study here soon. So there's that putting off and putting on. It's God's past act, our present responsibility. There's also the contrast between here in verse 9, the old man characterized with its evil practices, and then in verse 10, 
the new man who is being renewed. So the old man, which is uh, characterized by its evil practices, uh, Ephesians 4, that context that you could turn to, we won't do it now, but he says, the old man which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit or deceptive lusts. I like to say it this way, that sin or... or um, the desire for evil is deceptive in that it promises what it can never deliver and it delivers what it never promised. And the fine print, the bottom says, oh, you're going to be suffering from this, that, and the other thing. Oh, you didn't realize? Well, you should have read the fine print before you engage in this evil thing. Sin is deceptive. It's deceitful. It fills us with, with wonderful promises of satisfaction, trillion, fa fulfillment, fame, money, whatever, but it's empty. It's an empty promise. It is deceptive. Riches. We ought not be characterized by those things, being corrupted. I mean, that, that sounds bad itself, as opposed to being renewed. We read it in Romans 12, too, being renewed by the spirit of our mind, or in the spirit of our mind, but being renewed in, the, in our thinking, changing the way that we uh, interpret and relate to the world. This is, that's one way that we put off and put on. But that contrast of old man and new man is something that uh, is, is so instructive for us, recognizing we ought not live in the in the flesh any longer and we live obviously in our bodies we are not ephemeral spirits we're not you know dis, disconnected from our bodies if our spirits ever spirit souls if ever those if ever that part of our identity our personality were separated from our body what do we call that death you you can't survive without your spirit soul in your body. God has made us one person, which again is why death is so unnatural. It was never God's plan. Well, it was never part of what God designed us to be as humans, to be disembodied spirits. Now, we're thankful, thankful that God is a redeemer, and even we know uh, uh, Scripture talks about the spirits of just men made perfect, but what are they yearning for? The resurrection. That's what we desire when our soul spirit is, is reconnected with our body, the heart, the mind, all those things that are, are talked about, really describing, okay, this talks about old man, new man. Another way, Paul and Peter both describe the outer man, which is our flesh, and the inner man, which is being renewed day by day. We see this, this, this contrast, this fight even, Romans 7, if you want to read that, this battle between who we are now in Christ, the new man, and what characterizes our flesh, what characterizes the old man with its evil practices. And Paul said in Romans, we just read it, make no provision for the flesh in regards to us. Let's put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And it wasn't just make a little provision. You know, really try to minimize what you do. All things in moderation, right? In fact, doesn't Ecclesiastes say uh, something about righteousness? Uh, you, know, all, you know, you ought not be excessively righteous. What is that going to gain you? But don't be excessively evil either. Wait a minute, what are you talking about there? Here, he's saying, no, nothing like that. Strive after holiness and righteousness and truth and purity and godliness. That contrast of old man, new man is, is in Scripture different places. It's talked about even in 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection chapter. But it talks about who we are in Adam. You know, our father Adam, sin, condemnation, wrath, judgment, separation from God. And who we are in Christ. Oh, accepted, holy, uh, drawn close to, to God. It's also talked about in the prophets, Ezekiel uh, and Jeremiah, in a, in a certain way, not with the con not the full contrast, but Ezekiel has this idea of a heart of stone, a heart of stone which is impervious to God's um, mercy, God's word, 
just entirely irrelevant in terms of uh, what God wants from me. I, I don't care what that. Do you know, heart of stone, if you read about purity laws in the scriptures, Leviticus and, and Numbers, you can read about uh, wood and clay and stone vessels. The wood and clay, the wood and clay vessels can absorb impurities. They can absorb tastes and, and smells and different things. So they're, they're not as, as uh, pure as stone, which does not, I mean, you get the right stone and you, you, it will not absorb impurities. It will not absorb anything. It's stone. When Ezekiel is talking about a heart of stone, we're talking about something that is impervious. It will not accept any input. It, it's, you know, people talk about, um, how do they even talk about bleeding a turnip or getting the blood out of a turnip? But what you, what's the thing about getting a stone? I forget, you can tell me later. When we have a heart of stone, it is it is rebellious, obstinate, stiff-necked against God. And didn't we see that in the Old Testament with Israel? So much stiff-necked, would not bow uh, to God, would not turn their head to, to away from their sin, back to the Lord. Uh, but God says, I will take your heart of stone and I'll give you a heart of flesh. I will give you a new spirit. Um, Ezekiel says in the same context, a new, a new heart, uh, Jeremiah says, uh, which is what we need, this transformation that, that changes everything. And it's not just something in the future that I know I'm going to heaven when I die. Well, how are you living right now? Are you living in, in sexual morality and purity and all those other things? And are your words just vile? Are your words characterized by anger and enmity and finding fault and gossiping about other people? Well, that's, that should not be. And James says, how can, how can uh, good water flow out of a bad heart and, and vice versa? Vice versa, I should say, not colloquial. Uh, but what does your life look like in Christ now? Romans 13 discusses this, Ephesians 4, and here in Colossians 3. He says, since you have put off the old man with his evil practices. What's the old man characterized by? Evil, nasty stuff, not good, not pleasing to God, and it is uh, pervasive in our lives. All of our righteousness is uh, characterized or uh, violated, defiled by our, uh, by our filthy heart if we're not in Christ. We, we think, well, I'm trying to clean up my act. Well, Good luck on that. And, we, and it's not like we, we shouldn't encourage unbelievers to change certain things and, and not do this. And not, but is our concern just for their temporal existence, you know, better life, longer life, which we want to help people with, you know, get out of debt. That's a good idea. And, and you know, don't smoke and all the, that's good advice. But if that's where our Christian ministry begins and ends, we've not done them anything good, any help. Christ is where the issue is. What are they doing with Christ? Where, how are they responding to him? Where is Christ in their life? Are they finding refuge in him? Are they finding their forgiveness, their hope in him? Are they finding their reason for being, their, their uh, ambition in life is to now please Christ and not themselves? That's where we need to be uh, motivated and, and encouraged by. Paul is so active in that, and here he's, he's talking to the Colossians in this way. So it's because of the change that we have in Christ, the justification by grace through faith, and now we can be progressively, little by little, and sometimes it looks like one of those stock market charts, a lot of ups and downs. We don't want to trend down. We want to trend up toward Christ. We'll see this later, well, in the next verse. Uh, we are being renewed and conformed to his image. But it says here, another example, at the beginning of the verse 9, another example of sins of our tongue or sins of our speech, because... That's a lot of ways where our 
sinfulness, our pride, our unrighteous, our, our wicked heart is in our words. We saw it back about blasphemy. Just the, the previous verse there, uh, blasphemy, slander here is translated, or just disgraceful, shameful speech. Uh, uh, that, that, that doesn't characterize godly people. That characterizes the world, what you're talking about right now. That perspective on life, that way that you're talking about so-and-so, that is, that's not designed to build up. Um, Ephesians 4.29 says we ought to speak uh, words that build up one another, not tear down one another. But here he says, do not lie to one another. Do not be false to one another. This is a mutual thing. If you ever want to study the one another commandments in Scripture, love one another, be patient with one another, bear with one another, forgive one another, here's one that's in the negative. Do not lie to one another. Do not lie to one another. Of course, a parallel idea would be Ephesians 4.15 that says, speaking the truth in love or, or doing the truth in love or ministering the truth in love, we grow um, in all aspects, into him who's the head and so forth. But it's, it's truth that we're dealing with, not falsehood, not lies and deception, or words that are meant to deceive or mislead other people, that we are speaking falsehoods, that we are trying to uh, turn people to a wrong direction, toward wrong thinking. We are to be people of the truth. And again, in that passage, Ephesians uh, 4, he says we are being um, renewed, or we have been renewed in accordance with the, where is it, verse 24. Um, put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Righteousness and holiness of the truth, not unrighteousness and ungodliness of error that used to characterize our lives. Now we can live differently. Now we can live righteously and godly. Titus 2 says, righteously and godly in the present age. Uh, sensibly also in the present age. This idea of lying is so powerful and so pervasive in our lives. And it doesn't just have to be, in fact, I, I saw a meme or a Twitter or something or other, some kind of short little thing that if we lie to the government, it's a felony. If the government lies to us, eh, it's not a big deal. It's propaganda as well. That's, that sounds reasonable. But no, when government lies to us, it's just another natural day in our, in our human existence. But is there a standard? What is so desirous for Christ to come is that he doesn't need to spin the news. He doesn't need to explain himself. He always does and will do what is right and good. And when he speaks, it's the word of truth. No need to question. No need to find an alternative media source. Well, Christ just said this, but we think that... When Christ rules the nations with a rod of iron, that's going to be good. I mean, if one of our people rose up and tried to lead the world and with a, a rod of iron, you know, being all this, it's tyranny. Even if they meant it for good, it is tyranny. Why? Because, as one good gentleman would always say, the best of men are men at best, and we fall short. We can't attain. As, as godly as David was, I mean, David, the most named person in the Bible other than God and God the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, David, all throughout Scripture, even Ruth, and we'll see it next week, Ruth ends with so-and-so and so-and-so, and David, who was king of Israel. Wow. But even David has issues. You remember the lie he told about his friend? That, that okay, Joab, take this guy and, and, and kill him because of this now that they ain't covered it up or the, wow our beloved brother
David or Moses, the most contrite, humble, lied at the beginning of the thing. In fact, if you want to look at it, each of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, each of those patriarchs were characterized, or at least part of their history included lies. Well, Sarah's not really my wife. And Isaac, no, Rebecca's not really my wife. And then Jacob, oh, just any number of lies that he told, which is interesting how his life was changed when Laban was lying to him. His father-in-law, Laban, was lying to him and changed his wages and all that kind of stuff. Uh, you lie, you'll be lied against. You know, this, um, how does how's that old saying go? You ride with the outlaws, you die, or hang with the outlaws. Uh, it's just you, know, you get what you deserve in that way. But each of the patriarchs were characterized by lies and deception. It, it lies that were intended to uh, mislead and bring or lead people to wrong conclusions. The scripture, even David, who was characterized by lying on a few occasions, says um, in uh, Psalm 119, verse 29, remove the false way from me and graciously grant me your law. Remove the false way from me. Or um, 163, verse 163, I hate and abhor lying, but I love your law. I hate and abhor lying. Why? Because it doesn't get you anything. It is, it is wicked. It deserves, rightly, God's wrath. Uh, Psalm 120 talks about delivering uh, uh, David, I believe, wrote that one. Deliver my soul from a lying lip, from a deceitful tongue. And what will you expect, O oh, deceitful tongue, sharp warriors of the warrior and the burning coals of the broom tree? In other words, judgment. You lie against the truth, you will get judgment. Jeremiah, again, Jeremiah prophesied at the end of, this, of, the, of the reign of the southern kingdom, the, the existence even of the southern kingdom of Israel, of Judah, rather. And he says, what, what characterizes uh, these, th my, my generation? He says, they bend their tongue like their bow, lies and not truth prevail in the land, for they proceed from, from evil to evil, and they do not know me, declares the Lord. Let everyone be on guard against his neighbor, and do not trust any brother, because every brother deals craftily. Every neighbor does, goes about as a slander. Everyone deceives his neighbor and does not speak the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. They're, they weary themselves committing iniquity. Their, your dwelling is in the midst of deceit. Through deceit, they refuse to know me, declares the Lord. Of course, we know Jeremiah says the heart is more deceitful than all else who, and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Many other times, lies are spoken of. Uh, uh, even Romans 1 talks about exchanging the truth of God for a lie and saying, that's here's our God. And what is it? It's the creation. It's, what is, it's the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. What's the big deal about lying? Just going to the quick. Revelation 21 says, in terms of final judgment for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and sexually immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. God is concerned about lies. Why? Because they're totally contrary to his true and righteous character. And if we are, or since we are raised up together with Christ, then truth ought to characterize our lives. There are, and just briefly, and this is a whole big idea and, and topic in and of itself, but just briefly, this idea of what might be called righteous lies. Don't we see people speaking righteous lies in the Bible? And how, how, do, how does Paul even get off saying, oh, don't tell, don't lie to one another? Well, sometimes, isn't it, isn't it better to say, in fact, there's a Christmas movie. I don't know if you ever watch, uh, which one is it? Um, Miracle on 34th Street, is that the one? Is that the right name? There's a line in that that says, um, a lie with a smile is better than truth with a tear. 
In other words, if we can bring a smile to somebody, even through a little deception, oh, it's so innocent. That's better than speaking truth and, and making them tearful and cry and, and destroy. It's better to speak the truth. Better to speak the truth in love. And if there are any errors in that or any, any issues or any disappointment in the truth, well, we need to deal with that. Why are you disappointed in that truth? And, and how can we help people in that regard? But you know, there are lies or, or <clears throat> purported supposed lies <clears throat> they can be uh, discussed in terms of disguise or ambush or just straight out we didn't tell you the whole truth nothing but the truth kind of thing remember when Joseph uh, son of Jacob saw his brothers in Egypt and he recognized them but they didn't recognize him he disguised himself uh, to them and spoke to them harshly now, there was a redemptive action. He wasn't being vengeful. He was saying, okay, they're claiming that their hearts are changed. Are they really? Do they really have their father's best interest? And are they willing to um, love and lay down their lives even for their brother Benjamin, the youngest, now the favorite son since Joseph was gone? But there was some deception there. It came out in the end, of course. Well, what was that about? Uh, it's always purported about the Hebrew midwives in Exodus chapter 1 about uh, you know, Pharaoh said, kill all the male children of the Hebrews, and the midwives said, didn't do that. And they said, well, the Hebrew women give birth so quickly, we couldn't even get there to do the work. And God blessed them. What about Rahab, who uh, helped the Israelite uh, spies who came into Jericho and, and hid them, and then misled the Jerichoian uh, officers, they went that away kind of thing, but they really went that way. Uh, what's that about? And then, of course, Hebrews discusses her in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11. James talks positive about Rahab in that regard. But are they celebrating the lie that she told or the faith and the the attraction that she had toward the God of Israel, toward Yahweh, that she said, save me and my household because I know that your God is God, not these gods of, of uh, the Jerichoites or the Jerichoans or people of Jericho. Um, do you remember when David was fleeing from Saul and he went to Ahimelech, Ahimelech, the, the priest at Nob, and he claimed that he was on a, a special mission from Saul? Was he? Well, in the sense that the mission was die, Saul, uh, David, Saul wanted David dead, well, but David is fleeing. So how, what is that about? And even Jesus refers to that, that idea of, of eating the food that met, was meant, the bread meant only for the priest. God, uh, the son, celebrates the fact that David was on this mission. What about when David uh, was in with um, Akish, uh, the king of Gath, the Philistine king, and he's, because uh, they were celebrating, you know, David is, or Saul has killed his thousands, and David is ten thousands, and David said, wait a minute, I'm David, and the Philistines didn't like him, because the ones that David and Saul were killing were the Philistines, oh no, what? and so David, recognizing the um, the words of the king, disguised his sanity before them, and acted insanely in their hands, and scribbled on the doors of the gate, and let his saliva run down into his beard. And I love the, the response of, of the king. He says, don't I have enough madmen mad here in, in Gath? Why do I need another one? Get this guy out of here. So that was wonderful. There are lies in warfare. Remember how Gideon hid the lamps in a jar? And then suddenly, you know, surrounding the 300, 300 soldiers around the big um, enemy uh, camp. And then all of a sudden, they broke their lamps and, and uh, all the lights were out. And this, for the sword of the Lord and for Gideon. What about the ambush of Ai? that Joshua led against the city and say, you guys stay over here. We're going to draw them out and then all of a sudden you come in from the back and take over the city, burn it to the ground. Um, Saul set an ambush for the men uh, of the city of Amalek. Um, David, when he at the end of 1 Samuel 27, he 
uh, claimed that he was attacking non-Judean towns, but in fact he was attacking, or he claimed he was attacking Judean towns or cities, but then he claimed to King Akish that they were Judean cities, making himself more odious in the, in the nostrils of King Saul and to all the Judeans when he was in fact not doing that. There are lots of of military deception. In fact, that's, isn't that what military operations are about? Clandestine, uh, subterfuge, uh, lies, uh, lies in that kind of sense. <clears throat> and it's even malicious intent, right? We're doing this so we can destroy the other, other kingdom. God himself commands this kind of thing. Jeremiah 51 verse 12 says, Lift up a signal against the walls of Babylon, post a strong guard, station sentries, place men in ambush. For the Lord has both purposed and performed what he spoke concerning the inhabitants of Babylon. God is the one who leads in that way and will destroy them. When God wants to destroy, he destroys. God is a God of truth. God is a God of righteousness. God is a God of holiness. He expects us to do these things in the context of military operations, even in the context of uh, potential military in terms of David with King Akish and so forth. Uh, what would be a, a conflict? There is that practice of, of deception, practice of misleading, you know, a sleight of hand kind of thing. Uh, prestidigitation, have you heard that term? You know, fast fingers, misdirection, you don't look at the hand over here or don't look. You know, there are those kinds of things. But God wants us to be truthful. He wants us to speak truth. He wants us to be truth. As I mentioned last week about hypocrisy, God wants us to line up who we are in Christ ought to be who we claim to be, who we present ourselves to be in our, in our lives, in our words, in our attitudes, our actions. God is the God of truth. Love rejoices with the truth. God looks to those who speak truth in his heart and does not slander with his tongue, Psalm 15 describes. We need to speak the truth in love when we grow thereby. We don't lie to another. God doesn't lie. He never lies. Titus 1 and verse 2 says, God who cannot lie. That's a comfort because pretty much everybody else can and does lie. Hebrews 6 and verse 16 says, it is impossible for God to lie. That's what we want to desire to be. We want to be people of truth. We want to be those who reflect the truthfulness of God, come what may. Sometimes we think, oh, if I speak the truth in this situation, it might offend the person. My father-in-law would talk about the fear that Christians have about sharing the gospel because somebody might raise an eyebrow at you. We think, oh, we're being persecuted. They just looked at me kind of weird. Really? If we're offended, if we, if we are stalted, is that the right word? If we are hindered in our ministry of reconciliation, ministry of the message of reconciliation, because how people might respond to us, they might mock us. They might say, oh, he's in one of those Bible thumpers or, or whatever. Yeah, I am. Because apart from Christ, I deserve God's wrath. You can be part of Christ too. You can have his righteousness. That's what we're after. Speaking the truth in love. What can we speak now that would build up, not tear down? What can we do, speak in a moment, in a situation that would give grace to those who hear? Instead of tearing down, I mean, even in Joseph's situation, when he disguised himself to his brothers, it wasn't malevolent. I mean, if anybody had a reason for vengeance against his brothers, they wanted to kill him. And God, Joseph said, you know, I know you meant it for evil. There was not a good intent that you had all throughout that whole experience, but God meant it for good. And that is a, a perspective that we ought to have. God is the Redeemer. When we are slighted, when we, people lie against us, we can trust God, leave vengeance to Him. 
He is more thorough. He's more creative. He judges righteously. We don't know. We cannot know all the circumstances surrounding our situation, but we can trust God who does, and we should speak the truth. The, the contemporary illustration of, okay, if the Nazis come pounding on your door and they ask you, do you have Jews in your house? Give them over. What would you do? And you do have Jews in your house, cupboards and cabinets and wall spaces, and, and would you hand them over? What would you do? Anybody ever been in that situation? No. It's a very extreme situation. Are you willing to speak the truth? Are you willing to, to lie concerning that? What would you do? There are so many things that we don't even understand. Suppose, I mean, okay, suppose that those, those Gestapo, those Nazi people were coming to the door to take any Jews to the concentration camps. What if, and of course you want to protect them, but what if those are Nazi Gestapos that are... Um, actually favorable to the Jews and looking for them, trying, you know, using the, the authority of, of the Nazi Reich to uh, uh, expose all these Jews, but they intended to save them. How do we know? We don't know. Uh, what would you do in that situation? Is there a right or wrong answer? In general, speak truth. Leave the results to God. Do what's right before God. Speak truth that is, is, is careful. But other people have said, well, they don't deserve the, the right for the truth. They are wicked. They are disobedient. They're murderers. They intend evil. And so telling a lie to them is not a big deal. Rahab did that, didn't she? So isn't that fine? Just be careful. Our, in general, our, our, our main motive in life is to be truthful and speak truth. And, and again, are we trusting God for life and matters of death? Or are we saying... <clears throat> I'm God, and even in the case of, of uh, an ultrasound that revealed something wrong with the baby, this baby is not expected to live past two minutes after the birth, you should terminate the pregnancy. Am I in the place of God that I should take this matter in my own hands and kill my child, actively kill my child? Let me leave the results to God, and if the child dies, the child dies, and if I die in the course of it, then... Praise be the Lord. He is the one who gives and he takes. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Can we trust God? God is truthful. He's never, never lied. He's never let us down. We ought to speak truth. Don't lie to another. The mutual thing. Being false, being deceptive, being uh, hypocritical, being you know, misleading. And No, we want to speak truth to build up. To build up is the issue. And it's so hard even to know sometimes how, how do we do that. But we'll see. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, all these wonderful things we'll see in the next verses. Well, I'm sorry, I went a little bit long. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we're so grateful that you are a God of truth, of righteousness, of beauty, and you have changed us for your glory. Please help us to be men and women, boys and girls, who are characterized by truth and righteousness and holiness. We want to be agents, um, uh, preachers even of the truth of the gospel and that people would change their daily practice but also their their eternal position to be out of adam out of under satan's realm and dominion but in christ and in his righteousness and in his presence even we are thankful for the gospel that changes all these things and gives us a practical and a future hope Please, may each one here respond favorably to your gospel. We pray that they would come to the end of themselves recognizing they don't have it. They don't have righteousness. They don't have truth in their life. They don't have the expectation of life or the opposite thing, the expectation of when you die, you die. There's nothing after death. No, there is eternity after our physical death. And it is either to be in your presence or apart from your presence. We're so grateful that you are a saving, redemptive, rescuing, redeeming God. Please save, please sanctify us this morning. We pray in Christ's name, amen.